And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Hey, my name is comedian Kayvon, the most famous half-Persian comedian in the world. And today I'm on the Brave Maker podcast. Take a listen. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker podcast. Hey, episode 22, I have a special guest co-host today because Rebecca Amosa couldn't come into the Brave Maker office today. So, Robertino is on the show. He's being my uh, my co-host uh, introductioner. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Robertino, you got to tell people what you do because you're a very important part of Brave Maker. What do you do? Hmm. Well, I <laughs> wear multiple hats. For Breakmaker, and somehow, when you when you're part of Breakmaker team, you kind of you kind of um, right, you just go along with the flow. So, <laughs> so um, I guess I'm I've been helping you. I'm your assistant, director assistant, and also mainly I've been doing a lot of programming. So I go to a lot of film festivals, and I. Choose the best of the best that I think. I take yeah. notes, and then, um, yeah. So it shows. That, I mean, we we got a lot of great, great, great films. The yeah. only problem is that narrowing down. Yeah, to, too many sometimes. Yeah, it's like maybe we should make it a week long <laughs> next year. We'll, we'll get there. We just gotta get some more <laughs> money to do that. Yeah. Okay. So people who don't know the word programmer, just to break that down, it just literally means like you are programming what films go into what blocks, what mm-hmm. days, what times when yeah. we screen them. And Robertino, literally, please follow this guy. He goes to every film festival there is. It's yeah. So funny because I someone tagged, has to do it. I, ta- <laughs> <laughs> I tagged him in a thing. There's a California Independent Film Festival in Danville. Is it Danville or no? Orinda? Orinda. Yeah. Orinda. And I went to yeah. it last year and I saw it coming up and I just tagged him. Robertino, mm-hmm. are you mm-hmm. going? He's like, of course, I got my yeah, pass. I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> so, what makes that for you? What makes it for you? Why? Why do you feel like that's something you gravitate to? That you're really you enjoy it, but you're also good at kind of choosing films. What's that process like for you? Uh, it, it's just a passion for film, really. And I I just find myself, um, it's just like a natural instinct for me. Like um, as a calendar rolls, I already know, okay, well, this film festival is coming up. So I already know, okay, well, I got to be there. I got to yep. get myself ready for this one. And so now there's just a ton of um, film festivals, and now it is it is time consuming and it can be a little draining. But but once you're there, and then like the films are just so impacting, and you're just like, wow, I'm so glad I hear, I'm so glad I'm here, and I wish such and such person was here to enjoy this moment with me. Man, I have to tell this person about this film, yeah. or I can't wait to uh, tell this other person. You know, like so so. It, it's kind of like that process where I, I it's a passion 
personal passion thing for me. You're good at it. Yeah, that's, that's really good at it. The now. only way I can explain it, I guess. Uh, a lot of the films we programmed in our June festival came from suggestions from Robertino and mm. our October film, which is called For They Know Not What They Do, mm. which is October 16th, a Wednesday mm -hmm. night, was because really Robertino film. suggested that film at the, for the Frameline Film Festival before mm -hmm. it even came. And I, from the description, he texted me. I was like, oh, yeah, we definitely got to go see that. So we saw it at the filmmaker. Yeah. And now that filmmaker from Berlin is going to be here for that. Yeah, that, that 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 film really hit me. I mean, I I've seen a ton of films and and I usually I'll have I'll shed like a tear or two or whatever, but this one I was just crying the entire film. Oh, really? Wow. And I was just like, wow. Like I had never cried so much during an entire film. And even when the filmmaker spoke up on stage like during the Q&A, like he couldn't hold it together mm -hmm. like three times. Mhm. Mm Three times that the filmmaker himself had to stop and get his thoughts together because he couldn't. Yeah. Because he mentioned that every time he watches the film, it, it hits him. It hits it, him. It, yeah, yeah. So, I definitely, um, definitely trying to get the word out on that film. Yeah. And so, I hope a lot of people come and see it. Really. And we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. So if that's intriguing to you, you can get your tickets now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to hopefully have Daniel Karslake on the Brave Maker podcast because he'll mm. be with us actually for two mm. days. So we'll get to bring him here to great, the studio, yeah. which would be great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So you're all in. Thanks for Robertino. We need to do sure. a whole podcast. I want to do a whole podcast on like best practices for mm. film festivals. Since you've been to so many film festivals, yeah. I've been to so many. Mm -hmm. We've done a film festival. I thought it'd be cool for us to bring Jessica and Rebecca in and just sit around and talk mm -hmm. about the do's and don'ts mm -hmm. of going to a filmmaker a film festival of submitting to a film festival how do you network your relationships at mm -hmm. a film festival so be on the lookout for that listeners we're going to do a whole podcast about mm -hmm. the best practices making the best experience happen mm -hmm. at a film festival possible we're going to give you shortcuts <laughs> <laughs> and don't ever do we're this <laughs> yeah where to get all the free food uh, <laughs> all right so you guys are in for a treat uh this is a comedian named Kayvon he is also, you guys, this is huge. He's giving 20 free tickets away to his October 24th wow. show. So if you want to go to the San Francisco Cobbs Comedy Club on October 24th, Saturday, mm -hmm. 4 p.m., you got to find him. He basically said you got to find him on any social media platform or his email and just say, I heard on Brave Maker that you're giving away tickets to your show, and he'll give you a ticket. All right? That is no joke. That's no joke. He's a funny guy. <laughs> go YouTube him. All his links are in the show notes, but. Uh, you're in for a treat. Enjoy. Mm -hmm. Brave stories change the world. You are the story. Cool. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Brave Maker Podcast. I have a branded half Persian comedian named Kayvon uh, on the show with us today. We have a mutual friend named Nadia. So props to Nadia for connecting us. So Kayvon, uh, we always like to have people share like how they got into the business. You were a medical sales device person for a good portion of your life and you gave it up. How'd that happen? Well, I was just uh, basically a kid in Las Vegas, Nevada, looking at all the headlining comedians coming to town and saying, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be in lights one day? I had no idea how to do that. So I moved to Los Angeles and got a job in medical sales. That way I had money and a company car, and I drove around, and I would do open mic comedy shows at night 
because I had no friends and there's nothing else to do in California for me. And this was a great outlet. But comedy is a little bit of a drug. The more you, if anyone's ever tried improv or comedy, you do it once, you do it twice, and you're doing twice a week. Then the habit's like four nights a week. Next thing you know, you lost your house, your car, your wife, your girlfriend. <laughs> but you, but you're making people laugh all over the world. So it's it's a fun uh, fun life. So you became a, an overnight success, or in other words, it took you how many years? Ten. Oh well, it depends what you measure success. You know, people in San Francisco say success is following your heart, but I'm a little more business minded. So success is when you can uh, go to the bank and they unlock the door and let you in. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I mean, really though, there are little milestones. Like the first time you get on stage and just hold the microphone, that is a huge success because before that you were just a guy going, I could do that. Everyone's got a lot of couch confidence, but how many people take that next step, those final 10 steps to the stage where those lights just, have you seen Men in Black with sure. Will Smith? You have all these jokes and you're going to be like this and you're going to do that. And then the lights hit your eyes and it's almost like you're erased. You're like, where am I? Wait, what happened? And uh, the next 10 years of my career has been getting comfortable with that light in your eye, getting comfortable with the people staring at you, some of them making faces like, I don't like you, and just being who you are and letting that live through you, not letting the stage erase who you are. So how did you realize that comedy was going to be your thing? I mean, besides wanting to have your name in lights, did you find yourself being funny? People were gravitating to your stories? Were you always making your family laugh? How did that come to be? Well, I just think differently than most people. At least I thought I did. And I would just look at a news story and then come up with a quick quip. Or in school, the teacher would say something and I'd come up with a quick one-liner just to make the girl next to me laugh, that kind of thing. So it was not like, oh, you know, there's guys, Eddie Murphy, right? Mm -hmm. He was probably doing the moonwalk, then jump on the teacher's desk and spin around and then do a, you know, a funny laugh in the crowd. Everyone just more and more. For me, it wasn't like that. It was more restrained, maybe Jerry Seinfeld in the back of the room kind of thing. And you've got this, like, this approach to kind of finding your, your niche by recognizing that you were a, the only half-Persian comedian out there or something like that? Can you share a little bit how that, how that be, became your identity? Well, as you're doing comedy, you're like, how can I stand out? Yeah. You don't want to be just another person in the herd. Right. And whenever I go to uh, hear people say, oh, I went to a comedy show last week. We had a blast. I say, who did you see? Oh, we don't remember, but boy, were they funny. Well, what good does that do me? So I decided, all right, it's time because I graduated with a marketing degree from Reno, Nevada. I said, let's put little tag words in people's mind that they can always find me like a week later or a month later. So I said, hey, guys, my name's Kayvon, which my real name is Kayvon, but I spelled it K-V-O-N. So it's almost like a rapper or like a new car or a radio station. I mean, what is that? Yeah, but at least it's memorable. Then I'm like, and not only is my name Kayvon, you guys can always find me on Google because I'm by far the most famous half Persian comedian in the world. And they're like, what the heck is that guy saying? A half Persian comedian? And that's mainly an inside joke, which is like, look, who's more diverse than me? I'm half Persian. Yeah. <laughs> which if you see a photo of me, 
blue eyes. My mom's name is Margaret McVicker. But truth be told, my dad, Iraj Moezi, is from Iran. So if you Google most famous half-Persian comedian, you'll find me. And I won't be like, oh, who was that guy again? I basically plant lots of Easter eggs in people's head by the time I get off stage. My goal is they never forget me. That's cool. I think you know, for our listeners, that's something really important is recognizing, you know, sometimes I love this phrase, sometimes I hate it, but just building your brand, like how do people think of you, what comes to mind when they tell your story, when they go to your comedy show, when they talk about your work. And so I think it's really smart of you to go, all right, this is who I am and this is what I can put out into the world. This is what people can, you know, are going to Google. They're going to Google the, the Persian comedian. And although you're born and raised in Nevada, uh, you can own that part of your identity because it is as part of your your origin, you know, your origin story with your dad. I think it's a really cool, cool thing. Uh, and you find, right. it seems like you have a lot of success in speaking to this part of your life, although maybe not um, a common entry point, but a lot of people actually appreciate. You actually probably are building an audience around that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, the way I look at my career is kind of like a Persian food in many ways. Okay, so my main fan base is like the rice that's just at the bottom of the plate. So I just, I want the Persians to come laugh, but you need to expand. So with every hour of comedy I come up with, I pick a new path. So I might make a bunch of jokes about dating. So that's a little bit of topping on the rice that's like, oh, mainstream college age kids who are talking about Tinder and going on first dates and stuff. Okay. And then I, I'm adding, oh, and, and I'm also getting a little older. Jeez, what's with these wrinkles on my forehead? And you know what? I'm going to help people get around town. I'm going to use these for directions. Use them like a roadmap. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so that's like there's a bunch of 30-somethings and 40-somethings going, hey, man, that's, you got to see this guy. And so each joke I look at like a way to enter a new walk of life and get them on my side and slowly build on that, that food pyramid that I've got going on. When we were first connected, uh, my friend Nadia had messaged me because you were doing a show in the Bay Area, which you are. You have another one coming up, August 24th in San Francisco and August 25th in Sacramento. We'll put those links in the show notes and on our, our social media if anybody wants to come see you. Yes, uh, and we're going to give the first the listeners, the first 20, a free ticket just what? for saying they heard us here. Yes, first 20. It is my birthday this week, so I'm being extra generous. Just everyone gets one free ticket if you're listening, first 20 people. So find me on Google. I'm not going to tell you where, but you know how to Google half Persian comedian. Wait, so if they Google you, how, do you want them to email you or uh, social? Email, okay. Instagram, Anything. Facebook. I'm on a lot of things. You might even find me on Craigslist. That's amazing. Okay, you guys heard it. First 20 people get you a ticket. This is great. I love it. Sacramento or San Francisco, San Francisco. 24th and 25th of August. But my friend Nadia connected us. Uh, I want to say um, two months ago, June or July, and I was saying I was looking for podcast guests, and she said, oh, you got to meet my friend Kayvon. And I think within 24 hours, another friend of mine, Valerie, said, hey, do you know any comedians by any chance? I want to do something special for my husband's 50th birthday. And long story short, you quickly jumped on an opportunity to do a set at a restaurant <laughs> for a guy turning 50. Now talk about that a little bit. You know, that was just like great karma because uh, what are the chances? I'm from Southern California now, but 
you're up in Northern California. We're trying to pick. It was easier to do that gig than find a podcast time for you and I over the phone. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I happened to already be up in San Jose. And so the next day I was open and I got to do a birthday party for an Indian doctor at, in an Indian restaurant. And what I this is what I was saying about having that Persian bed of rice. Because I'm the most famous half Persian comedian in the world, tongue in cheek, of course. And because I wear a suit on stage and I can make them laugh. Now Indians are going well, he could do our events and then Pakistanis and then Filipinos because you're just going further down the spectrum. But mm. they're like, he gets it. He knows the cultural thing. He's yeah. not going to be really dirty. Some comedians will come over there drunk wearing a T-shirt and, you know, puke on the bridesmaid or what have you. But <laughs> that's the low level of our career. And the cool thing about that Persian angle is I get to pretend like I have a Mercedes Benz and wear a suit and a Hugo Boss tie and uh and people can see that working for their event too. So your uh, your also unique brand is that you did a lot of research. So you very much personalized this experience. You didn't just come on and talk about some generic experience in your life that was funny. You actually talked to the person putting on the the, the birthday party, got some backstory on her husband and her kids, and included them in the comedy so much that, that, that she raved about how personal it was. It felt like it was just something for those 35 people in that restaurant that actually started to spill over, right, into the rest of the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, so the comedy was upstairs in the restaurant, but it was kind of open atmosphere to the downstairs people who kept looking up going, what's going on up there? And I've learned with comedy, I've bombed enough times to know, if you're at a comedy club, do all the jokes about yourself. But when someone's hired you for their event, the recon is where you do the winning. You win by learning, okay, what's the wife's name? What's the husband's name? What are the kids' names? Did you ever do anything funny? What's the most embarrassing story you can remember? And people just start to open up and they start to feel part of the process because, first of all, I'm putting them to work. to going, give me some stuff to work with. But as we start going back and forth with jokes, I start to learn, okay, what will make this guy laugh? And we had a really low ceiling on the second floor, and the son goes, make fun of that my dad is short. And so I go, you know, hey, Val, your husband wanted us to come here. He's the only one that can come you know, upstairs without having to duck down. <laughs> Stand up. You know, I said, Stand up, doctor. See, he's still got two feet of clearance. The rest of us are about to hit our head. You know, these little jokes, which may or may not sound funny now, that standing ovation at the restaurant. Because, oh, that's whoa. And that's what it's all about. That's a lot, that's a lot better than going up and going, did you guys hear about my girlfriend and my, yeah. my house and my car? Once it's me, 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 you're going to bomb at a wedding. Nobody cares about you, dummy. They want to know about those two up there and maybe the mother-in-law. Yeah. That's so. awesome, man. So you're, uh, again, and you're building an audience as you do this. So you are not, there's nothing above you, you know, a, a cruise, a wedding, a birthday party, a comedy, you know, a show at Cobb's Comedy Club. You are doing all these things. And as you're doing it, you are building an audience, which that is something that every creative person needs to do. We need to be saying who who are the people that gravitate toward us because we can't please everybody. So you're finding all these really cool spaces and uh, audiences of different ethnicities, which draws and grows your ability to at some point, you know, make some money. And we were talking about earlier before we started recording this podcast. Uh, that one of the reasons why you do that is so that you can practice your joke writing because you actually have some goals for TV writing in the future. Can you talk about that? Yes, I take every opportunity to do a gig as if it's as important as the Academy Awards. Because when they hired me to perform at an Indian restaurant upstairs, 
And they said, here's the subjects you can talk about, and here's our kids, and here's something funny the doctor did last week. I need to write jokes to that. And that's a great exercise because then if I'm hosting for, you know, or if I'm writing jokes for, let's say, Kevin Hart and The Rock, that's even easier because I've been able to make, you know, Dr. Wilson's kids funny. Imagine what I could do with, you know, Kesha and Lady Gaga because they're in the news every day. The inside jokes are even more magnified with star power behind them. So, yeah, I just love writing. I love writing jokes. There's there's no reason not to be doing it. A lot of comics are like, I'm not going to put in that effort until I get the big opportunity. But any business owner and marketing person knows <laughs> they're putting the cart in front of the horse. You have to be doing the exercise every day so that when the big opportunity comes, you slide right into that. You're not starting from scratch. There's uh, I'm trying. I forget the guy's name. Who, who was the guy who talked about the ten thousand hours? It's the Outliers book. Uh, yes. What's his name? I forget. But, you, but Mark, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. There you go. Talks about how you need to be spending time building into your profession or into your 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 abilities and skills. And there's a there's a thing where when someone hits ten thousand hours of doing that said thing, they can actually own that in a better way, and they're, gonna, they're actually going to be a proven commodity. So you were you were talking about before we started recording the podcast about how it took you a certain amount of years before you actually could own the label of comedian. Can you share about that? Absolutely. That tipping point is, and you can get to that tipping point after 20 years, or if you really triple down, do two, three shows a night, five days a week, you might get there after, I don't know, um, seven years. So you really want to shorten that length of time. Uh, I, I take any show, any time, especially when I was starting out, because any audience that's willing to sit down while you're talking, <laughs> mm-hmm. that counts. Even if they're tossing a chicken wing at you, like, sit down, the Super Bowl's on over your head, you idiot. <laughs> there are nights I try to avoid comedy. Uh-huh. Halloween, people are dressed up like vampires going, as soon as he's done, we can go you know, show off our costumes. <laughs> um, New Year's Eve is kind of a cluster because everyone just can't wait to get drunk. So I tell them, don't put me up anywhere near the midnight hour if you can help it. But... Um, yeah, no, this uh, early on, I just want, I did not want to say I'm a comedian. I go to a party and to my horror, my friend would grab some girl and be like, you got to meet my friend. He's a comedian. I'd done three or four shows at that point. That's like, you know, going to three karate classes and saying you're a karate expert. It's just stupid. I think, uh, I think there should almost be a merit badge that you have to earn before you can say you're a comedian. Other than that, you're just learning you're getting in the habit of comedy there's not really a lot of comedy classes stand-up is a class Mm. so you just keep even chris rock will show up on a tuesday night at the local comedy club for twenty dollars and work out his new 10 minutes of ideas because comedy is one of the only sports where you have to fail in front of everybody piano you can go home and practice till you get the song right and then put on your concert but Uh stand-up is like let me say these words and hear people go no you idiot or ha 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 all that feedback is instantaneous, and we need that so that we can go do our main show. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think in my experience, too, I had to learn by doing, and uh, I hear what you're saying about failing in front of people as a comedian. I think that's a bold, and that's why we call our organization Brave Maker, because it's really having to confront your fears, uh, especially the fears of failure or not being able to please everybody with your work, but the idea that you're putting yourself out there in front of a live audience that might not like your stuff. So what's that been like um, with 
creating, <laughs> creating things that are almost like babies and having people, like you said, like just trash all over them or, or tell you to, to get off the stage. What has that been like for you? Do you have any stories you could share? Because I'll perform in non-comedy club environments, it's taught me to be a lot better. And I learned that from like a guy like Robin Williams. He'd just walk into a restaurant and start making everybody laugh. And that's when you know you're at that next level. So those that need a comedy club and the DJ, everyone sit down. Comedy starts now. Like That's all nice, and that's a controlled environment. But I perform in so many odd venues that when you see someone let's say, who's not into it, they're just like staring at you like, I could do this. You might walk up to them, put your hands on their shoulder and be like, Everyone loves me, but this guy reminds me of my dad. He's not going to give me any fake laughs. Thank you, sir. Thank you for putting the pressure to me. You know, yeah. that might crack him. And then all of a sudden the crowd, and even if he never laughs again, the whole crowd points at him and laughs. I'm like, everyone loved it. Still not that guy. We'll get there, sir. Uh-huh. You know, and that's how you shift the energy. It's all about shifting energy in your favor. Another thing I'll do is sometimes I'll be at a college gig, college kids, millennials, they're sitting back popping bubble gum going, who's this guy? You know, 40 kids in a room. And I'll say, we're going to do comedy, but first it is time to warm up. I need to know who's seen comedy before on a live stage. And you know, they raise their hand like two, 10 kids who watches on Netflix. Everybody. I go, who hates most of the comedians on Netflix? You know, a lot of people clap and laugh. And then I'll say, well, here's your chance to do better. Before I go on stage, I always have an opening act. And tonight, one of you will be my opening act. Who's got a joke? They're ready to try on stage. And now I've just shifted the whole energy where the spotlight's not on me right now. I'm walking around pointing in people's faces going, who's got the guts? Nobody? Come on. And usually one little timid hand. And then I make a rule. I go, no matter what joke they say, we got to laugh like it's the funniest thing we ever heard, you know. And once they get on stage and do the why did the chicken cross around, <laughs> you know, boom, everyone falls out of their chair laughing, make the person feel good. I go, now we got a party. Here we go. And then, boom, I go into my show and we seamlessly cross that bridge. So but what about the times when they don't? When they don't fly, uh, you, you were talking about driving home, like thinking about those just bombs. How do you handle yeah. the rejection? Because that's a yeah. that's a normal part of this industry is people just not even wanting you to take the stage, let alone when you do take the stage and, and wanting you to get off. How do you handle rejection? So as I've started adding those little tips and tricks to start my show off to a smoother, if the airplane's gotten up in the air, you can usually keep it in the air. But every once in a while, it comes down crashing and burning, like you said. And the reason I try to reduce those is because it's a long five-hour drive home from Sacramento to Los Angeles going, God, you're damn near in tears (laughs) going, what am I doing? My friends are doctors now. But uh, (laughs) when I've done all my tips and tricks, I can usually say, hey, that wasn't my fault tonight. That was them. And when I first started, it wasn't them. It was almost always me. But now we've crossed the threshold where, yeah, 10, 15% of the time I probably screwed up. But 85% of the time, that audience sucked. And I can hold my head up with pride and be like, that was on you guys, mm. which is kind of cool. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, so taking it, so you're not, you don't like internalize it as much. You sort of just kind of brush it off and move on to the next one and find a way to cope. It does help when you have a strong lineup the next three months. Like, yeah. hey, it doesn't mean as much. But if that was your last show for the next, like, you know, 40 days on the books, that's when you start to, like, really question your existence. 
We had a writer, Irving uh, Ruan, on a couple podcasts ago. He's also a he's a he's a uh, comedian who he writes for different things like the Huffington Post and writes a bunch of different kind of comic things like Funny or Die. And he was sharing about a lot of his comedy coming from the painful, awkward parts of his life. How does that work for you? Do you feel like you're gravitating toward exploiting your pain or exploiting the awkward parts of your life and growing up? I do try to mine all that stuff as best as I can. And one of the big handicaps I have is I had a nice upbringing. Two parents, they they were treated me great. I watch America's Got Talent and I'm just kicking myself because <laughs> they pick the saddest story and they make that person go to the top four. Yeah. And I'm like, dang it. Why do I have to, you know, why do I have to grow up in a gated community? Why did my parents stay together? I could have been so much more like efficient in my comedy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but uh, I do mind other things. Like, well, first of all, we all have pain. We all have things that bother us. The things that bother you the most are great for comedy because mm-hmm. it comes from a place of passion. Yeah. So you can really dig in. Like my newest stuff right now is about why did they take away our cargo pants? <laughs> hey, I'm thanking God for that. <laughs> no, I, and I cover it. I go, they didn't look good. They were ugly, but doggone it, they were functional. Oh, my gosh. They can carry your cell phone, your keys, your yeah. potted plants, well, whatever else you want to stick <laughs> Well, back then, we didn't even have Bluetooths and iPhones, and so we didn't need them. Now that we actually need them, they're gone. Oh, and that's just... And then I break it down, and maybe it's a metaphor for other things in life, but people are just dying laughing at how much I've looked into pants and my solutions and my ideas for the future. And that's what's funny when you make something just absurdly exaggerated. Yeah. Oh, that, and I won't spoil it for you, but I'll do the joke for you when you come to the show. Okay, sweet, uh, sweet. August twenty fourth and twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. Go see Kayvon. Uh, <laughs> I, right. I, I think you should do a whole set on cargo pants because I just was thinking about this picture I have of me in cargo pants, and when I look at it, sometimes it looks like the evolution of hammer pants because they were so <laughs> like tight at the waist, huge at the thighs, and then like you know tapered again, but just with mm-hmm. pockets. And I look at the picture that hangs on our wall, and it's like always embarrassed. Uh, what and is that the- joke came from that joke came from being bullied because my first TV appearance was in like 2007 and I was wearing cargo pants. Now they were kind of phasing out, but it was still at the tail end of it, and that's what I had. <laughs> but now they re-released it on Netflix in 2015. And that killed me because everyone's like, "Why is he wearing those?" I'm like, they should put a timestamp under it. Like, this was filmed in 2007. These were acceptable to wear at the time. <laughs> so uh, instead of getting picked on and bullied, I'm, I wrote a whole – what started out as two minutes of jokes about, hey, I like those pants. And now it's a solid six minutes, which is pretty funny. That's when you know you're getting better as a comic, when you can squeeze the lemon and keep getting little juice out of it in the form of laughs. So talk about your TV experience a little bit. You've been on some shows. You also have a special on Netflix. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Netflix was Russell Peters is a very famous Indian comedian, and he put on a show where he brought up two of his favorite comedians every night for uh, for ten nights in a row. So it's twenty of us, and I was one of the young com. I was probably too young to have landed that, but I got lucky, and uh, I was wearing my cargo pants. And then after that, I went <laughs> on Last Cop Standing, and then I went on MTV a show called Disaster Date where. This was a cool hidden camera show. Women thought they were going on a beautiful date, and then I would just ruin it 
on the hidden camera until they ran for the door. Then we would reveal all the cameras behind closed doors. <laughs> I think my oh. favorite my favorite credit you have is you were in a horror film called Ginger Dead Man Two: Passion yes. of the Crust. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The Ginger Dead Man was a movie I auditioned for, and they're like, "You're going to be the lead." And it's kind of like a Chucky doll that goes around killing you, but this one is a gingerbread man that comes to life with a dagger and he's sneak, sneaking up on. And I have to go, oh my gosh, I think he's coming. I smell nutmeg. You know, get out of here. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> you guys, we'll put a we'll put a link to the show notes in that. There's a little trailer swirling around around that one. That's a good one. Oh man, I also loved earlier you were talking about. Uh, writing for TV. So that is that a goal of yours to be on a, a in a TV writer's room or show running or something? That would always be great because that represents a smaller amount of stability in the business. When you yeah. can be a writer, you don't have to go on the road as much. Comedians make good money on the road and it's almost a pay cut to stay in town, but you're trading quality of life. So you're not catching a plane at four in the morning every third day. So if someone approached me with a, a writing gig, I'd be like, all right, what's the pay? And let's do it. You know, let's work this out. But it would be nice to be in a project that you really love. Yeah. Like if I was a writer for Seinfeld, that's great. When you're a writer for a show you don't believe in, some reality show, mm-hmm. and who gets the rose and who doesn't, yeah, I'd still do it, of course. But, you know, you just got to pick, pick your battles. And I've been asked to be in a couple other things. And, you know what, after the Ginger Dead Man 2, I'm – <laughs> I, I'm at a new level now. I'm not going to uh, come down t- from there. We got to go up. <laughs> uh, Ginger Dead Man Three. I'm rooting for you. Oh man! Yes. So, uh, what? <laughs> two more questions. What tips do you have for someone who wants to break into comedy? What should they do? Well, if you want to break into comedy, you have to. It looks really good from the outside, but you are going to sacrifice if you're going to do it right. A lot of free time because people see me work on stage 20 to 45 minutes a night and they go, man, I wish I had that job. I don't get a day off in the last two years. I don't have like had a handful Mm. because what my new move has been do the show, film the show, cut out the part that was funny from the show, edit it, add my title card to the end, have a cool intro Post it, then repurpose it to Instagram, then repost it to Facebook, uh, yeah. then cut into a smaller clip and put it on my Instagram story. And I'm just like, wow, the amount of time, and I'm just staring at my phone going, I used to be a comedian, now I'm a social media yeah. editor, marketer. Yep. And, but if you don't do these exercises, your next show isn't going to be sold out. Nope, I think that's really good, good words and wisdom in this time, which is so great. We have access to all these free platforms. You know, we can do all these things from our phone, but it takes time. Like, obviously, you're doing it on your own. You don't have someone who's working for you. You don't have a marketing specialist or an administrator or all this stuff. You own the whole thing. And I think as brave makers, that's, that's a huge part of the creative work we have to do. We have to own that. We have to be our own publicist, you know, our own cheerleader, our manager and agent at times. And then someday, hopefully, you'll get that team of people around you. But until then, it does take a lot of sacrifice to, to own that, to own that dream and that goal. So that's, that's really good wisdom, man. Anything else you want to say? No, yeah, I just want to tell everyone, just yeah, build your own platform. What I did, if you get a chance, you go on my website. I try to make it look, what I do is I find who's the best comedians in the business. What does their website look like? All right, now what can we make mine look like on that budget? And my website now has a little video player that you can watch you know, multiple clips and everything. Then I wrote a book. I'm like, I want my book not to look like I made it on Amazon and they helped me publish it. 
but to rival what you see at Barnes and Noble on the shelf. So I contacted a photographer. You know, so the more you invest in yourself, you will look like you belong at that platform. Yeah. So you need to you need to bring your game up to the highest level because you have the power to do it, but are you willing to do it for yourself? That way you can compete with the best. Well, that's great, man. And spell out where people can find you on all your socials. Well, if you just Google Kvon, K-V-O-N, and then type in Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I'm on all of those, including my YouTube channel. And I'm happy to say, thanks to analytics, you can keep an eye. And we're going up in subscribers on YouTube about 2,000 a month, which when I first started, it was like 20 a month. So all this stuff is, is a snowball that once it's rolling, it's picking up speed, and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. So I, you just have to be like um, Indiana Jones. Remember how he couldn't walk along the path unless he believed it was there? And as soon as he stopped believing, he would start to slip through the crack and fall. You have to believe that path is there with each step. That's great, man. Thanks. I'm loving We're, we're going to post your stuff in our show notes, and we'll retweet your uh, and reshare some of your things on your Instagram. It's just super hilarious. There's a new one you just put out about these kids sliding out this big jumbo slide that is just oh unbelievable <laughs> that that exists in the world. <laughs> well, and my newest YouTube video is a wedding I performed at. So if you've ever seen a comedian at a wedding, it's pretty rare. I think I'm one of a handful that does it, but this is an Indian. No, no, this is a Persian Afghan wedding. And it's just fun to see how comedy can translate to other walks of life. You wouldn't normally see it. Uh, that's great, man. Well, hey, keep going. I look forward to uh, seeing you when you're in the Bay. And thanks for sharing some time with us on the Brave Maker podcast. Of course. Hello. Shout out to all your listeners. And I will see you all in two weeks. Brave Maker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Thanks for listening to the Brave Maker podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, and share with a friend.